Hi, I'm Tanya Tomaszewska. Welcome to my TT Wine Explorer podcast. This podcast is about my adventures in the deep and wide world of wine. It's about discussions which I have along the way through my lens as an everyday wine enthusiast turned cork dork and reform banking lawyer turned wine industry professional. Today, we're going to stay in British Columbia, my home province in Canada, and fly to the Okanagan Valley. For those not familiar with it, the Okanagan Valley is British Columbia's largest wine producing region both geographically and in terms of the volume of wine produced here. There is the huge sea-like Okanagan Lake, which runs more than 100 kilometers long up and down the valley, and it's the geographic centerpiece of this region. It's one of the reasons why we can make wine in these northern reaches, reaches of the globe. The Okanagan region runs from the 49th parallel in the town of Asoyuz, just on the border with Washington State and located in Canada's One True Desert, all the way up to the 50th parallel in Lake Country, north of Kelowna which is decidedly cooler climate. And it's in this more northern and central part of the Okanagan Valley where we'll land today to have a discussion with Grant Stanley, the winemaker of Spearhead Winery. Grant is a very highly regarded and award-winning winemaker. Spearhead opened in 2010 and is a small family winery located in bucolic rolling hills and farmland area, about a 10 or 15 minute drive from the center of Kelowna. Both Grant and Spearhead are pretty much all about and known for their Pinot Noir, I read somewhere once that Grant says that he thinks about Pinot Noir about 80% of the time. Well, I know from all of my fantastic tasting experiences at Spearhead that Grant thinks about Pinot Noir a lot, but in my view, Grant thinks about a lot of other things. He's a wealth of knowledge about his craft, Spearhead's mission, our region, our wine industry, and generally all things wine. I always enjoy my chats with Grant Stanley. I hope that you enjoy our discussion today. Let's fly. Hi, Grant. Thanks so much for joining as my guest today. Hi. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to be with you. Based on our previous discussions and tastings with you at Spearhead, I know that we could talk literally for hours about a broad range of topics relating to the wine world. But for this episode, I'd like to discuss the kinds of wines which you're making at Spearhead and your laser focus and mission around grape variety selection, clones, and vineyards. But I'd also like to discuss the broader context in which you're applying your craft and the current landscape for grape growers and winemakers here in BC, particularly in light of the real challenges which our wine industry, wine industry is facing here. Um, but before we dive into that, let's start with a bit of background. You've been making wine for a while now, both here in BC and beyond. Can you tell us a bit about your story? You know, how did this all start for you? How and where did you learn to make wine? Uh, well, it goes back to um, travels and uh, joy experiences that I was seeking in New Zealand in uh, the early 90s, I guess about 1991-92. I embarked uh, uh, on a trip to New Zealand. My family are all from New Zealand. My, my parents are, are New Zealanders and I have lots of family in, uh, there. And so I had, uh, you know, a kind of desire to kind of go there at that point. Uh, time, I really, um, you know, I'd been a, a waiter and uh, a silver service waiter uh, uh, and used that as a form uh, of uh, income for traveling um, for many years. And, uh, and so I had a great interest in wine, but I certainly didn't anticipate getting into the wine industry. Um, uh, I guess it was a, a purely matter of luck. Uh, you know, I had a cousin there who was involved in marine farming uh, and I was working with him uh, in the Marlborough Sounds, um, very, very close to Blenheim and, you know, obviously the, the Sauvignon Blanc wine scene in New Zealand. Um, and at that time, uh, 
there just happened to be a bit of a red tide or, uh, you know, they basically said we could no longer harvest mussels. And so me and my colleagues were all put out of work. And uh, several of them, you know, uh, went along with myself to Montana. At the time, it was called Montana um, Wines of Blenheim, uh, the largest winery in the country. And, uh, and so we went there and applied for work. And they were looking for, you know, just general tank diggers and, you know, laborers, effectively. Um, and so that was really my first start. Um, after working with Montana for a little while, um, I guess about six months or so, I sort of, you know, certainly developed a keen interest and became one of their their seller hands. Um, there was many of us. There was about twenty seller hands, uh, and um, uh, and fortunately, they they were a uh, you know uh, happy enough with me, and I was happy enough with them that they were able to sponsor me uh, to you know basically have a wine education at uh, the local school for winemakers, which was uh, Nelson Marlborough Polytech accredited by Lincoln University. So at that point, I was able to uh, work nights uh, in the winery and study by day. And I did that for about two and a half years until I had a, a degree and I decided at that point that I wanted to uh, move to uh, the North Island and uh, uh, look at maybe working with some smaller wineries. So I did that. I, uh, I found uh, work uh, as an intern or an apprentice, if you like, at a couple of small wineries in New Zealand before I ended up at, uh, you know, uh, a, a, what is a, a bit of an icon winery over the years for Pinot Noir in particular, uh, a winery called Atarangi Vineyards. Um, and Atarangi, I didn't know it at the time, but Atarangi was already quite famous in the, in the Pinot Noir world because they had um, captured the Bouchard Finlayson Trophy at the World Wine and Spirits Award on two occasions, back to back, and that had never been done before by any winery. And so they were kind of well known in the industry as being, you know, maybe pioneers of Pinot Noir in, in New Zealand. And, uh, and as I say, I was super fortunate that they gave me an opportunity to, to work, uh, work with them. It was a family business, a family-run business, very small, uh, much, very, very much like Spearhead now that I look at it. Um, and I was able to uh, um, intern and apprentice and learn from, you know, a man who I think is, you know, one of the one of the great winemakers uh, that New Zealand has ever produced, Clive Patton. Um, and Clive and I worked side by side for eight years at Atarangi. And uh, again, super, super uh, generous and fortunate that he uh, um, at some point after about five years decided that, you know, he wanted to broaden my horizons and, uh, and we got into a, a kind of a, a pattern of him sending me to a Northern Hemisphere winery uh, every off season uh, to, you know, learn from, from winemakers that he viewed as being, you know, um, uh, influential and, uh, and had, you know, different techniques and things to kind of get my teeth into at the time. So, so I was, uh, you know, at that point going to Oregon, going to California uh, Burgundy, and every year I would do something different and uh, and 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 bring something back to Atarangi as well um, after those trips. And and now you're at Spearhead, and you've been at Spearhead, I think, for maybe six to seven years. Um, and as I understand it, uh, you know, when you came on board and joined Spearhead, it was really um, part of that was to really hone in on Spearhead's mission to focus 
focus its portfolio um, to become a Pinot, known as a Pinot House or Pinot Noir Specialist. Um, mission accomplished. You've been kicking some real goals with and at Spearhead. You guys are racking up medals. Wine Align is ranked. Spearhead is one of Canada's best performing small wineries. So huge kudos to you. Um, you know, we'll get to winemaking expertise a little bit later, but, you know, a lot of different components go into making an award-winning wine. Um, so maybe let's start with location and from altitude. For those not familiar with the Spearhead Winery site or Kelowna or Central Okanagan generally, um, you know, from your point of view, you have seen, you've been and worked in, as we discussed, the iconic Pinot Noir regions in the world. You know, what is it about this region that you think can make Pinot Noir have success? Or what is enticing about this area that, that you think can, can make it work? Well, it has one of the, one of the key elements uh, for, for any great Pinot Noir region, and that is you know, having enough heat units to actually ripen the grapes, um, having good soil, good free-draining soil profiles so that there is, uh, you know, the vigor uh, of the vine is, is reduced, um, low rainfall is absolutely critical, and that has, you know, that is certainly one of the great attributes. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't irrigate, uh, you know, in order to, but it, it gives us the, the choice as to how big we want the berries uh, and how much water we're going to apply. Um, so all of those those uh, elements are here, and then the, one of the most important ones I think is the the around harvest time and just towards the end of the season, you know, because we're on the fiftieth parallel here. You know the um, the the autumn really does bring you know dramatic uh, temperature shifts and denarrows where we end up with you know twenty degree days and you know less than ten degree nights, and this has the the effect of really kind of concentrating flavor and acidity, maintaining you know reasonable pH in the in the grapes, um, and, and yet you have this you know wonderful ripeness underneath all that, um, so. Um, that really is, you know, when I saw that and I see the beautiful fruit, you know, it has a tendency to maintain the quality of the fruit when you have those wonderful cold temperatures um, and day-night, you know, temperature shifts um, that, uh, you know, year after year after year from, you know, I just couldn't believe the quality of, of, uh, of the grape harvest here. Um, and it was, you know, certainly it seemed to me like a 10 out of 10 proposition for many years because I really never came across, you know, bad disease vintages or, you know, wet vintages like we've seen in Oregon where, you know, huge rain comes through and damages crop and makes it the whole thing, you know, re you know really a little sketchy. Um, here, just, you know, perfect uh, weather and perfect conditions um, across the board. So, no, I thought I'd landed in viticultural nirvana when I arrived here for sure. <laughs> Um, so speaking about other uh, Pinot Nirvanas, I'm often asked by wine travelers and, and customers and clients how British Columbia Pinot Noir compares to Pinot Noir, from, for example, from Burgundy, Oregon, New Zealand. Um, you know, my guess is that you get asked that question quite a bit as well. Uh, how do you tend to answer that or well, do you? <laughs> well, I ask myself that question a lot because, you know, when I, I, uh, when I first arrived here, of course, I've always considered myself a you know, a Pinot Noir um, pioneer journeyman, if you like, that everywhere I go, I like to take, you know, wines from wherever I'm working and, you know, share them with others. And one of the cool thing about, about Pinot Noir is that we have uh, a small group uh, of winemakers. It's still not a huge varietal. It, it accounts for a sm really, really small amount of, uh, 
of total production in the world. And the winemakers are very kind of um, sharing uh, of information and, you know, always looking to improve the breed. Um, and, you know, when I, when I take uh, wines from, from this place uh, into tastings, for example, in Oregon or California uh, at wine events that are specific for winemakers, um, I always see something different than what I see drinking them here. Um, so that's probably the best option opportunity to really see what you're producing and what it looks like when you see it in a lineup of eight other wines. And in particular, when you're in California and Oregon, I often feel that the wine uh, isn't quite as ripe as the wines of California and Oregon, um, which is, you know, um, there's there's brightness, there's acidity, everything, but they, they tend to have, you know, very, very ripe fruit, super ripe fruit. And that shows through in the finished wines as you know, they have uh, a lot of, uh, of weight and heaviness. And the wines that I always bring to those events always end up looking super, super elegant uh, in that context. Uh, and so, you know, they have, they, they, there's an element of, of, of uh, ripeness or, or a greenery, uh, just ever so slight element that I think ages beautifully and really shows the, the terroir. Um, uh, so yeah, that's how I kind of view them. I view them as a little lighter, a little less um, fat and rich than the American version of Pinot Noir, and uh, more. I would say more closer to Burgundy expressions, where there's you know um, there's some ethereal elements and there's some layers and some some you know when you have overripeness and huge ripeness, it kind of um, buries the other elements in the wine. And so, you know, I really like uh, the fact that these wines kind of dance. They're pretty, um, as well as being, you know, genuinely uh, mouth-filling Pinots. Well, I have to say I really love dancing with your Pinot. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're, so thank you. You touched on a few things there, uh, terroir and the etherealness of Pinot Noir, which leads into one of my next questions. Um and a little bit of an anecdote leading into it, maybe just to humor myself. I have a really vivid memory of a tasting experience, which I had in Willamette Valley a number of years ago. I was living in Australia at the time, doing a lot of wine tasting there. I came over back to BC for a visit, went down to the Willamette. I went into a tasting room and I asked what they were pouring that day. And they looked at me like I was nuts, like I should have known that answer. This was early days in my Pinot Noir or my wine um, kind of learning and journey. And I looked at the tasting list and they had, you know, seven to nine different Pinot Noirs, red still Pinot Noirs made from that winery. Um, no white, no rosé, all reds, but there were different vineyards. And then it was, it was then that I really started to understand or feel or experience that ethereal, the layers and the real complexity and the nuances between different vineyards. Um, and so when I moved back to BC from Australia and I started my own journey here in BC wine, I remember coming to Spearhead and Maybe it wasn't seven or eight Pinot Noirs in the, in the sitting I had, but certainly maybe four or five, I think, mm. from my recollection. And so this takes me to another, you know, the next building block in winemaking, which is, um, you know, we've talked about the grape, but now we're talking about the vineyard. So can you share a little bit about your approach on the winemaking program until you're in, in terms of how you're showcasing different vineyards? Um, you know, and it sounds to me that you think Pinot Noir really is a great vehicle for expressing terroir, the sense of place, um, judging on your comments mm -hmm. about taking your wine around the world. Yeah, well, I certainly do. And, um, you know, what I think, um, I think, you know, in the early days of Pinot Noir, both in Oregon and in New Zealand, uh, when we were just kind of coming, coming to terms with it, we were all just 
you know, blending everything and putting putting everything into a single tank. And uh, it was just Pinot Noir. Um, but, you know, you kind of quietly begin to grow that. And as we develop new vineyards in New Zealand, particularly, I was developing new vineyards all the time. And in that, you had an opportunity, obviously, to to craft the wine um, and uh, and see that vineyard. And so, you know, it was really, I think the whole single vineyard thing really came from, from us winemakers looking at the differences uh, of, of various vineyard sites and various clonal um, expressions and seeing all those are for ourselves and saying, well, why would I blend this away? Um, this is something that should stand out on its own. And There's farming and terroir and there's art and there's science. Um, winemaking, you know, we could do a nine hour episode probably just on your winemaking techniques. Uh, I won't do that today. Um, you know, I've been through your winery. I know that you have stainless steel tanks. I know you have French oak barrels of different sizes. You employ malolactic fermentation, lees stirring, different, temps, different types of ten- techniques for blending. And you also make a beautiful Riesling and Pinot Gris. Um, obviously, you know, winemaking, I expect um, various aspects are very, very stressful. And we'll get to the mother nature component um, and not to have that necessarily apart, but what you know? What are some critical times from from your perspective in the winemaking process? Yeah, I mean, without going through the entire processes in the vineyard, skin exposure, um, leaf plucking, devigoring, uh, uh, bunch sizes, you know, you could kind of forget about all that. And I would say it really, from the winemaking perspective, it does completely start from the picking decision. So you know, factor number one. Um, the picking decision, ba- you know, is based on so many things: the uh, the weather, the flavor, uh, how many days since flowering, um, uh, bricks levels, high bricks, low bricks. Uh, obviously, you know, high sugars turn into higher alcohol. Um, but most importantly, just general ripeness. Um, I know for a fact that uh, you know when I look around the valley that I, I, you know, on average, uh, I'm picking sometimes two to three weeks after many, many of my colleagues. Um, and, you know, that's just a, a stylistic choice. Um, you know, I really love what a little bit of raisining can do to a Pinot Noir where you have maybe five or 10% raisining on the bunch. I think those, you know, those little moments uh, give you, you know, uh, uh, I think the advantage of having, you know, really, really flavorful wines, really dense wines, really ripe wines. Um, so number one is picking. My favorite part of winemaking, and I was asked this the other day, what do I love most about making wine? I love the magic of fermentation. Um, and it is, without a doubt, you know, the time to shine for a winemaker um, because every decision you make, every, every day there's a transformation going on in front of you uh, from juice to alcohol uh, and, um, and tracking it and and good husbandry and caring for it, uh, adjusting temperature, all of these things really have the most influence on the finished wine. And so you have like a small window, I guess about, you know, my fermentations generally are about, uh, you know, three weeks uh, for primary alcoholic fermentation. Uh, So 21 days on skins. And and during that time, we never ever take our eye off the ball. Uh, Not for a moment, you know, there's no days off, there's no holidays. Uh, there's no rest effectively until the fermentations are kind of complete and the wine has become, you know, a stable element. 
It's such an, an amazing process to see for those who've never been in a winery or production facility during this time. Um, I really recommend those who have the opportunity to do so just to see how it's living, you know, like to see what's happening in a vat of the movement and hearing the sounds and the heat temperature change. It's wild. It's like this living art. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And to see the color of the juice and maybe taste it too, like it's beautiful. Yeah. And I, that's the time I recommend anybody who's interested in wine, go, go to visit a winery because that really is, that's the time when all the action's taking place and, and the good stuff. And, and we're, it is, you know, there's a lot of art uh, and um, intuition, you could say, in during that process. But there's also a lot of science. Um, you know, I do something here called daily analysis, which uh, I learned at several wineries that I worked with, where we literally sample everything every morning and put it through. It's uh, a full analysis in the lab. Uh, and then, you know, I have basically all the, all the numbers uh, and all the sensories and everything is there before you. And, you know, sometimes it takes that takes it, that process takes, you know, several hours in the morning to establish. Um, but it's the most valuable thing we do because, you know, we're basically uh, never fixing things. We're always kind of managing and maintaining things during fermentation. So we see little changes and, and we are able to kind of get in and intervene uh, most of the time with temperature. Um, and the chemistry part is really something um, that I think people who are not in the process, you underestimate or just are not aware, the biological and the, and the chemistry part. I mean, there's, there's so many layers um, of what's going on for decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are the things, so there are a lot of things that are within your control. You talked about protocols, decisions, there's the art, there's the science, there's the intuition, there's the chemistry. Um, but you know, the huge variable here, um, is an out of our controls and what we need to navigate and roll with is mother nature. Um, you know, so (laughs) there have been a lot of huge and acute weather events, um, and climate events in the world and uh, and in British Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, putting, you know, in addition to supply chain issues and skyrocketing costs from the last couple of years, consequential effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, there, there are so many challenges facing the global wine industry and our industry here in British Columbia. Um, it's been really acute. There are deep fruit, there are fires. Um, you know, we could probably do a whole episode just on fires and on effects of smoke in winemaking and wine um, and tourism. Uh, but today, um, you know, I think focusing on the deep freezes and cold temperatures for, for those who aren't aware earlier, beginning of 2023 and end of 2022, there were extremely cold snaps. And that's an understatement here in British Columbia, in our wine regions. Um, and it's had a, a devastating effect for uh, the crop um, here and producers, um, you know, expected estimated more than 50% crop loss, I I understand. And this is on the back of very short crops in recent years. Um, So Grant, I know you've been um, involved in the forefront of a lot of awareness raising on on these issues. Um, Can you provide a bit of context for the listeners in terms of this loss, in terms of the scale and locations and the the types of grapes or whatever, you Mm -hmm. you know, from your point of view, uh, from some of the main points that we need to be aware of sure. this year. Sure. Well, like you said, I mean, uh, uh, um, the, the timing of these cold uh, events and heat events is critical because you can have the same temperature 
uh, when the vine is in a complete dormant state and nothing will happen. Um, you know, and the same with the, with the summertime. People used to, when I first started tracking wine uh, from the Okanagan around the world, you know, of course, the first question they ask is, how can you even grow grapes in Canada? It's so cold there and you people are living in igloos and et cetera. And, uh, and you know, my answer was, is that, you know, the, 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 the vines survive because, you know, they're dormant in the winter when all that cold weather is coming. And in the last couple of years, that, that cold snap has come, you know, late November, early December. And it really has been two years now. Um, and I know that because I've been bottling at those times. And so, it's, you know, it's horrible to be bottling when you can't feel your fingers and your hands and whatnot because it's minus 20 something or other outside. Um, but at the same time, you're thinking about the potential, you know, devastating effect that it will have on your vines. And it is because they haven't completely gone into dormancy yet. You know, if you're picking your grapes in October, they really do need a couple of months to kind of basically, you know, send all the sap back down into the root system and really kind of just go into full dormancy. So, um, so the last two years we've had uh, been, been waxed pretty he pretty heavily with some minus, you know, less uh, plus or minus a few degrees beyond minus twenty seven, minus thirty, and uh, the vines uh, are are weakened by that. Um, a lot of our vineyards uh, here are grafted, meaning that you know the, the vine material is uh, is uh, placed on a on a rootstock um, that is. Uh, resistant to uh, nematodes and um, phylloxera, for example. And in, in this little graft, this union of graft is a really kind of uh, um, sensitive part that often that's where the winter damage gets in. It causes the next wave of disease, which is called crown gall. Um, and you're, you know, you're basically chasing your tail with all of these, these things because um, the vines, when, once the vines weakened, it's very, very hard to kind of get it back on the, on, on, uh, you know, happy state again. So, um, so it has been like that. It's been pretty rough the last couple of years. You talk about 50% crop loss. We're closer to 80 or 90 here, uh, in East Kelowna. Mm -hmm. And it's because we have some altitude. So for the very same reasons, uh, that we, that we have a great site for Pinot Noir. We also have the danger of these, of, of these events here because Pinot Noir around the world is always grown in areas that are maybe the cooler site in a warmer area or the warmer site in a cooler area, but they're always on the edge. And because unfortunately that seems to be what makes great Pinot Noir. The vines need to struggle a little bit, uh, um, it, otherwise, they, they produce too much crop and it's dilute and less concentrated. So, you know, we, we've planted these areas because the results when they when they come through in an average year are spectacular. Um, in particular, here up at the saddle block, uh, you know, on the, our home block here, you know, we won't have any saddle block for pro probably the next couple of years. But when we produce it, it's by far one of the, the top wines that we make. Um, and the fruit quality is is outrageous. So, um, so it has been tough, um, and it's exposed a lot of uh, a lot of new planting areas. You know, obviously we've we've done really well here um, with Pinot Noir, and so everybody's tried to plant it wherever they can. And the, you know, in every wine region, I've seen that. I've seen that in New Zealand, people trying to plant cow paddocks and pastures with Pinot Noir, and eventually it falls apart. Um, and so. In a way, this has kind of identified for us, um, you know, really where the winning sites are, the sites that can survive this. And there are, there has been many of them, in particular this year, you know, uh, 
I got a, a, a good, well, fortunately, almost all of my fruit comes from Naram, the Naramata Bench in Summerland. They have, both those areas have excellent lake influence and they're lower in, in their altitude. And so they weren't affected by, by the winter kill as much. Um, so, um, yeah, it's tough. It's reduced a lot of crop. Um, but, you know, I, we're, we're farmers. We're optimistic. Uh, we're resilient. And, in, uh, and most importantly, we're adapters. So, you know, as things change and things evolve weather-wise, um, it's up to us to kind of, you know, either kind of walk away from sites that aren't, aren't working uh, and develop into new areas that, that are. So there's the decision-making, and you might not know, but then there's the business, which is, well, there's all of the, I guess, well, costs of ripping up and then having to source and is it hard to find vines now, you know, or your clones that you want Um, and then waiting and then having to wait if people aren't aware, you know, at least three years, often well longer five before you're producing grapes um, that you can use for, to make the wine that you'd like to make, you know, your special lot. So um, obviously this has hit business, the business bottom line, um, and uh, there were discussions, you know, about aid. So there have there has been some help for growers, not only uh, grape growers, I understand, but orchardists this year with a crop renewal program. Um, but could you share a little bit about the other types of assistance that winemakers have been discussing and, and looking for, and, and what you know what some of the response has been so far, at least this year, yeah. from an aid perspective. For sure, I mean, um, we we have programs in place for um, for crop insurance. Um, but they're not really programs that were designed uh, in any way at any point to sort of deal with the widespread uh, vine death and vine damage that we've seen here in the last two years. And so, you know, the, the main thing that, uh, that has been kind of asked of the federal government and the provincial government is to kind of try and expand those programs of replanting vines uh, in the appropriate areas, of course, uh, retraining trunks and just having, a, you know, uh, more money and more budget for, for assisting farmers in those sort of pursuits with, you know, enlarging the insurance, the crop insurance program. Um, there was also uh, a lot of discussion about allowing grapes in here from Eastern Washington, for example, which you know changes currently changes your your uh, winery status from a boutique artisan winery to effectively a commercial winery, puts you in a different tax situation. Um, so there was some discussion, obviously, about maybe uh, you know relaxing some of those laws to allow for some some small producers to bring wine bring grapes in from from Washington. Uh, there was uh, talk about the amount of content um, uh, in a wine, local content. You know, I know Ontario, when they had um, years of, uh, of, you know, struggling with crop sizes, that they, they, were, they relaxed the VQA laws there to allow them to have, you know, outside, um, more, more percentage of outside wine from their region, etc., so that they could, you know, at least make wine and produce wine and stay economic. Uh, the new the, the new kind of method of sustainability is just staying in business, really, in this yeah, situation. Yeah. So, so anything that we can think of along those lines to kind of get us through. Nobody wants to dilute um, the wines here so that they're they're not pure BC and pure Okanagan grape grow, grown wines, but but uh, maybe some 
you know, I know, for example, that if I was able to make a, a Syrah from Eastern Washington here and declared that it was 100% Eastern Washington grapes on the label and it wasn't BQ or anything, that that, you know, my, my customers would be nothing more than happy to have something to buy uh, rather, than, yeah. rather than nothing. Um, yeah, I agree. Just from my observations of consumers and the questions I get asked, um, and, you know, my own personal view is I, I, I understand the origins of the rules now that affect the extent to which you can source grapes from outside of your region, your Appalachian, our province. Um, I feel that we've come a long way, baby, however, in terms of consumer knowledge and consumer protection. And so if things are clearly labeled um, and the consumer knows what is in that bottle, um, and that's a whole other discussion about labeling and ingredients, <laughs> Um, but knowledge, then, you know, let the consumer decide, I feel. So, right? Like, if you want to craft a Syrah from Washington State, the grapes from Washington State, and we can bring them in, and the consumer has diversity and variety of your craft and your art, why can't we offer that? Um, and, and in terms of an, a, an, a, on, a, on a playing field that allows people to run their businesses and, and go and strive for sustainability. So that's my standing on my box. <laughs> but, you know, also kind of the... Um, particularly in the in the global uh, landscape right now, where in British Columbia we're in a minority of having a complete, well, a minority of shortage of grapes. So south of our border, Washington State, I, I think you correct me if I'm wrong, will have a glut of sorts because the Chateau Montalena, um, not Chateau Montalena, sorry, Chateau Saint Michel. You know, as I understand, they they have released a lot of their growers, so there are going to be even more grapes available in the Washington market for purchase by winemakers. It seems crazy that there's so much just south of our border that could be used. But anyway, that's my personal view. Um, but, you know, I think, like you said, getting back to the point, I think consumers, we want to try everything. We're game. Just tell us what it is and the story and share your story and just be clear of where the product, the ingredients come from. We do that with food items. So Totally. I mean, right? what's important, you know, is in these moments that we're that we're able to, uh, to keep our tasting rooms open because they, they have... Uh, you know, they supply a huge amount of other uh, spin-off effects into the valley with tourism, wine touring. Um, everything kind of relies on people having some place to go uh, to to go to wineries and that. And, you know, we, we have seen a few tasting rooms in a few places shut down because they don't have the quantity or the volume. And that's disappointing. Um, we definitely, um, you know, we... You know, we just need a few things to bridge, I believe, um, the next kind of year or two. You know, the, the funny thing about the wine industry is, is that there's always a delayed effect because things are in barrel. Uh, the bottles don't uh, that we produce don't necessarily see, um, you know, the consumer for well over a year and sometimes longer, 18 months. And so the effects of this will be downstream will be, you know, next year and the year after. Um, and we've already looked, you know, pretty closely at what that what that looks like to a business when uh, when you don't have any any production and you don't have anything to sell, um, it's you know it's tough for sure. Absolutely, well, understatement. And like you said, it's not only um, putting wine in bottles to get to the consumer uh, in restaurants or in their homes or in bottle shops, but people who come to visit our wine regions and tasting rooms. And in British Columbia, so much of um, so much economic activity is driven or can be driven through agri-tourism and agri-business, which is winemaking, but also culinary 
adventure that we can offer. Um, and there's so much potential there. And it is a big part of that. And um, sustainability of this whole industry and our economy, a big part of our economy here in this province. Yeah. You, uh, the, the, the outside effects of, of a wine world, when you go to, you know, to the Willamette Valley, as you mentioned, or you come to the Okanagan, um, you know, Marlborough and Blenheim, you, you can, it doesn't take much to see that how much our industry or the primary industry of wine attracts other industries around it. And particularly, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, mm-hmm. food and chefs and, and, uh, all of these uh, great tourism pursuits uh, that, you know, people are creative and they open businesses based on the fact that they're going to see all those, those customers and clients coming uh, into the region for wine. I know in, in Martinborough, they, uh, they actually uh, in New Zealand, they, they uh, brought in a culinary school of new and young dynamic chefs into the, into the region and stuff. So there's just, there's so many other things at stake than just a a winery, not having enough wine Mm -hmm. to sell. Yeah. And also, um, you know, last but certainly not least, um, the art and our connection to the world of the senses and with each other. Yeah, <laughs> you know, for me, this is a very basic part of life and a very enjoyable part of life. And yeah. um, we need and to keep our great, we need to keep the grapes free and flowing. Absolutely. And selfishly, <laughs> you know, this is kind of how, how I've not only made my living, but how I've expressed myself, you know, for close to 30 years now. And it was coming into this year and not having, you know, grapes from uh, various vineyards and looking, it was kind of scary to, to be thinking, well, this is, this is what I do. And, uh, and I need material to, to, to achieve that. I need grapes. I'd like to thank you so much for uh, that art that you create. I'd like to thank you for um, your consumer awareness raising and awareness raising within the industry and for providing um, such a great thing in life for us to enjoy and uh, traveling through the glass. Thank you so much, Grant, for joining today. Um, I'm wishing you the best for the rest of this season and what I know has been extremely challenging times. And I'm looking forward to my next visit to Spearhead when we can continue the chat and uh, clink glasses. So thanks for joining. Hey, it's a pleasure. Very nice uh, of you to invite me. And it's lovely to have this discussion with you and look forward to, uh, to seeing you when you get here next. Thank you for joining me on my TT Wine Explorer podcast today. Stay tuned for the next episode. You can follow me on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until then, remember to keep tasting, learning, and living. Mm-hmm.